You guys ever sat down to a meal that you thought was just perfect, you know, you've eaten your three or four courses and you think it's done and everything's good, it's great, and then the host or hostess brings something else out and what you thought was the perfect meal gets even a little better. For me, I'm thinking apple pie and then a la mode and then a good cup of strong black coffee. But things look good, things seem perfect maybe already, and then they get even better because the host or the hostess had planned something that you didn't realize. That's a little bit what you'll see this morning in the text we're in in Genesis 2. We're winding down in the creation accounts. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. And just to recap, you remember most of chapter 2 we said is a recapitulation of chapter 1. It takes an element of the creation account in chapter 1 and expands it. And primarily it expands the portion of day 6. The creation of Adam and as you'll see today the creation of Eve and in the place the garden of delights that God had created for them. We're picking up at verse 18 this morning. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not a shame. If you remember in the creation account in chapter 1, God goes through this series every day, primarily days 1 through 5, and He creates something, He separates something, and each time He says it was good. Everything God's done was good. So He creates light, He creates dry earth, plants, animals, the heavens, the stars, etc. Every time He says it's good. In the creation account up to the text this morning, God has said about everything He's done, there's only one conclusion, it's good. This morning, though, there's one thing in the creation account that God says is not good. It's verse 18. It is not good for the man to be alone. Remember, most of chapter 2 is day 6. And God's not done with the creation. But at this point, Adam's created. And you remember, we learned Adam was created from the dust of the earth. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man becomes a living soul. But at this point in the story, it's just Adam. Eve's not on the scene. And at this point on day six, God looks at the creation and he says, there's one thing missing. Everything so far looks great. And if we're with Adam, we might think it's all complete. We're good to go. This is just right. The meal's over. But God's setting the feast, and it's His intention to to finish the course with dessert, if you will. And dessert has not been served. So everything's good so far, except one thing. Man by himself is not what God intended. Adam is incomplete without Eve. And by the way, we'll see the ways God goes to make sure Adam is aware of that here in just a minute. But, you know, the same thing is true today. 
most of us are intended by God to live life not alone. If God looks down at our lives today, he might say the same thing. It is not good. This one thing is not good that so-and-so will live life alone. It's God's desire generally, and I think this is true with rare exception. Most of us men and women are called to live out this short time we have on the earth married. God calls most of us to be married. You can read a couple of exceptional passages like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, Jesus in Matthew 19. In these texts, Paul's advocating that Christians remain in this single state so that they can serve Christ. Or Jesus talks about eunuchs in Matthew 19, and he says, you know, physically, <clears throat> excuse me, in the ancient world, some men were made eunuchs so they could not marry. And Jesus says, but others voluntarily become eunuchs. <clears throat> Sorry, guys, <clears throat> my allergies are, are killing me this morning. Um, you know, it just it goes, can't it? just flees. <laughs> It's, I'm not 51, I'm 50, and, and it still goes. One thought's in, and then it's out. Kevin, this is what I've got more to look forward to. Sorry. Uh, eunuchs. Eunuchs. Yeah, key word. Anyway, uh, Jesus says some men make themselves eunuchs. Not necessarily physically, but that is they give up marriage so that they can intentionally serve God. But even in those texts, if you look at both of them, you see that in each each case it says, but not all can accept this, Matthew 19. Only those to whom it's been given. Or even in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this is the exception, it's not the rule. And in fact, you read elsewhere, he says, I want women to marry and have children and raise families, etc. In other words, biblically the norm, just like Adam, when God looks down at the creation, the good creation, there's only one thing missing and it says, he says it's this, Adam by himself is not a good thing. And today, for most of us, most of us living out life on our own, God says, is not a good thing. God says that Adam needs a suitable helper. And you know, especially in our uh, sexist challenge society, that is where uh, issues about sex, male and female, are, are big issues. If you say Adam needs a helper, this sounds derogatory or, or could... We've talked about this before, but this is not derogatory. You know, the term here for helper is the Hebrew hetzer. And if you read the use of this term through most of the rest of the Old Testament, it's used of God more often than anyone else. God looks at Adam and says he's incomplete the way he is. He's good the way he is, but he's not everything that he needs to be. He needs someone like him who will complete him. So Adam needs that completion, that helper, that suitable helper. Uh, and this, of course, is by God's design. Now, I'm, I'll go over some statistics with you. You know, marriage has taken a beating in our culture, and really, in the Western world at least, probably, arguably, in the last 50 or 60 years especially, uh, about half of marriages end in, in divorce today. You know, we're not a culture that tick, tends to stick at things that require some work when times get tough. About half of marriages end in divorce. For the first time in history, statistics said this year, looking back from in 2006, for the first time in history in the United States, there are more unmarried households than there are married households. That is, you know, a, a family unit, someone living in their own apartment, house, condo, etc., there's more statistically more unmarried households than there are married households. Today, one out of four men and one out of three men, women under 30 years old are married. 
Only 25% of men under 30 are married today. And only 33% of women under 30 in the U.S. today are married. The average age at which young men got married, or young men, men, got married in 1950 was 23. And the average age for women at that point was 20. And, and actually, it's interesting. I thought these numbers uh, were a little different. Historically, they're about the same at 1900. 100 years ago in 1950, about the same. But to 2006, the average age for men at marriage is 27, and for women it's 25. So what you see is you see fewer marriages, you see more marriages ending in divorce, and you see people, young people primarily, deferring marriage further and further out. And as I say, marriage has taken a licking in our culture in the last several decades. There's a few reasons I can think of for this, and I'm sure you could think of your own. <clears throat> feminism is, in my view, one of the key reasons, and by feminism, I've said this before, it's a loaded term. I don't mean equal pay for equal work. I don't mean a number of things about the equal value of women and men. I've got four daughters and a wife. I'm all for women. It's, they're a good thing. Wouldn't live without them. I don't mean anything derogatory about this, but what I do mean is this. I mean the emphasis on what's called personal empowerment, which really means I on my own. It's really an advocacy of what God said wasn't good. It's me by myself. Personal empowerment, women pursuing their own careers. Again, I'm not making any blank statements about women having careers per se, but women in large numbers pursuing lifelong careers has affected marriage. Uh, frankly, also men being less manly. Uh, in this feminist culture, men are supposed to become tame Lions, in a sense. And biblically, you just cannot make that argument. Men are supposed to be servant leaders, emphasis on leaders. Men are supposed to be leaders, and in a feminist culture, that cuts against the grain. So we're living in a culture in which women are supposed to act like men, and men are supposed to act more like women, and it works against God's design. It works against having marriages. Related to women... uh, Pursuing education and careers, today, 56% of students on college campuses seeking bachelor degrees are women. There's more women on college campuses today than men. But in five years, 2012, 60% of the bachelor degrees will go to women not men, uh, versus men, 40% men. You're just, in other words, you're seeing a, re- a role reversal in our culture. And this certainly is at, uh, at the base of a lot of the reason and the dynamics on why we're seeing a marriage suffer so badly as it is. There's other things, though. You know, we're a consumer culture, and uh, relationships have become consumer-driven. So a lot of us in our culture, and by the way, I think you know statistically this is almost as true for Christians, almost no difference statistically, by the way, between the way Christians live and the way the larger culture lives. And so what you have is you have uh, young folks and older folks enjoying the uh, pleasures of marriage, i.e. sex and intimacy, without the responsibilities. Uh, On college campuses especially, you've got friends with benefits. Friends with benefits. That was a new one to me. I just read a book about uh, a month ago. Friends with... Jesse's like, oh, Dad, that's old. (laughs) But friends with benefits, same thing. means I hook up with members of the opposite sex for pleasure, <clears throat> one night stands, nothing more. I take the benefit, if you will, of marriage, but I take no responsibility at all. Eighty percent of those today who do marry have lived together before they wed. 
80%. Also, there's this. <clears throat> because we're a consumer culture and we have this incredible materialistic wealth, young people today generally, oftentimes, don't want to tie the knot, don't want to settle down until they can start with the level of affluence, personal wealth, savings, houses, cars, vacations, retirement accounts that their parents and their grandparents took a lifetime to save up and accrue. Uh, we, we are absolutely a materialistic culture. And you'll hear this both related to marriage as well as to couples having children. We're not going to get married until we can afford that house. We're not going to have children until we've got our five key appliances and our house, etc. But it's materialism. So people are deferring marriage also because they want more stuff when they get started. Kathy and I were at a conference a few years ago. I think I've mentioned this before, but it was hilarious. It was, uh, I think it was in Minneapolis. And it was uh, sex and the Bible or the Christian and sex or something. It was a conference about sex. And there's great Christian speakers there. Pretty good, pretty well attended conference. And there's a Q&A session with the panel of Christian leaders up there. And a young gal uh, raised her hand, asked a question. She says, oh, she wants to make a comment. She said she knows all these attractive, competent, able young women who want nothing more in life than to get married. But she wonders where the guys are. And Al Moeller, who's uh, pr pretty well known now throughout the states, got a radio program. He's the president of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Al Moeller, this guy's animated. Uh, his response is he takes every opportunity he can to tell young men, grow up and get married. Be a man. Grow up and get married. This single, I kid you not, this single comment in this conference got more laughter, more applause, more amens than anything else. There's all these women sitting in this conference, all these women, and there's very few men. And they're saying this is indicative of our life. Uh, we're looking for godly young men. And I, I just tell you, uh, no small part, because there's a number of attractive, able, competent, young Christian women in my house every Thursday night that I know lots of godly young ladies, and I don't know that many godly young men. Seriously, don't. Especially godly young, young men who are pursuing God and, and looking to be responsible and take a wife. Al Mohler says, he tells these guys all the time, grow up and get married. Grow up and get married. But marriage has taken a beating, and you're seeing this in the statistics and the demographics, and there's lots of reasons for it. The bottom line, however you cut it, when God looks at creation and there's Adam and there's all the good creation around him, God's conclusion at this point is this. There's one thing that's not right and it's Adam being by himself. Of that, God says, it is not good. Now, many young men today, uh, feminism, a feminist ideology has actually worked to men's benefit in some ways. If, you, if you're a happy pagan and you're a young guy, you can do all the things you want to with absolutely no responsibility in this culture. It's, it's kind of, uh, in that sense, it's win-win for the guys. Uh, you know, there, there's a toll, of course, long-term. There's a toll for women long-term, too. But m many guys, they don't feel a need to get married. And if they can have the benefits of marriage without marriage, that's all for the good for many of them. Adam didn't know he needed Eve at this point. And many men today don't know that they need their version of Eve. But look at verses 19 and 20. God wants to make Adam aware. God knows things aren't what they're supposed to be. But Adam doesn't. And he's less than a day old, so we'll cut him some slack. He doesn't know 
that things aren't what they're supposed to be. So what does God do? He makes them aware of his need. How does he do that? Well, he marches the animals in front of him. Why? What's this accomplished? Two things. The first, not directly connected to what we're talking about, is this. Remember from chapter 1, Adam is the ruler of the earth. He's God's representative head on planet earth. He is to rule the earth. God has told him unequivocally in chapter 1. So when God marches the animals before Adam, he names them. And as you know, biblically, the one who names is the authority over the person named. Adam is the authority and he names the animals. He begins exercising his dominion. But the second reason is the one to the point this morning. When those animals march before Adam, what does he see? He sees male and female. And male and female and male and female. And they keep going. And he also sees this. He sees that there's nothing else quite like him. There's two of every kind, male and female. And none of those animals that walk by look remotely like him. He gets it. God knows things aren't complete. Adam doesn't, but now he does. There's male and female, but I'm just by myself. And as I look over these animals, there's no one else, nothing else here like me. So once Adam gets it, God wants him to see he's not over. Creation isn't over. Only then God causes Adam to fall asleep. And then God takes a rib. And then God fashions the woman. And then God brings her to Adam. He makes Adam aware of the need first. And then he takes it under his hand to provide Eve. And Adam, you can imagine, he's seen all the animals go before, but... Can you imagine when God brings Eve to Adam? Uh, I, uh, women are the, are the most refined element of all of God's creation. They're the loveliest thing on this planet. You know, I'm from mountains and streams. I love being in the mountains. We were there last week, so I weren't here. Loved it. But you know, there's nothing on earth like a woman or a woman's beauty or, or femininity. It is the refined element, if you will, of both creation and humanity. A woman is the most refined element of both. Which, by the way, is also a cause of concern sometimes. When you see women in the culture going downstream, you know you're sunk. Because the most, the most refined element of your culture is being degraded or polluted or whatever. When, the, when women in a culture, by and large, uh, go south, the culture's gone. And you can see this historically. Rome would be the best example of that, but you can see that historically. But can, now, can you imagine Adam? He's seen all the other animals, and here comes Eve. And by the way, the last verse says they're naked and unashamed. And here's naked Eve. And, you know, I'm thinking Adam's like, wow, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Those lions, yeah, they're neat. Those elephants, those giraffes. But here's Eve. My goodness. Have you guys ever uh, been at a wedding? And before the bride comes up the aisle, have you seen the, the groom standing up front with a grin? Silly, ridiculous grin from ear to ear. Uh, it's hilarious, you know, because he's waiting for Eve to walk up the aisle. I think that's what Adam looked like here. When he gets it that God's not done, that he's not complete, and God's going to make him a helper, I think when he sees Eve, uh, it's like the groom, you know, wait, waiting at the, at the front of the church. It's, this is what I'm talking about. Adam responds, it's bo- she is bone of my bones, she's flesh of my flesh, she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, 
Adam in, in, the, in the Hebrew is ish, and Eve is isha. She's, we say woman and man. It's a, it's a similar term. It's a term that's expanded the same here in the Hebrew. She's like me, but she's different. You know, I'm one part of a puzzle. She's the other part, and we're a perfect fit together. Adam gets it, and Eve is it. And God wanted Adam to see that he had a need so that when he brought Eve along, Adam would get, this is what I'm lacking. She is what I'm waiting for. And oftentimes in your life, you will see the same thing. God will point out a need in your life before you're aware of it. That is, you'll be going merrily along and you think your life's everything it should be and God knows better. And so he'll make you aware that there's something else that he wants to do, add to or take away from your life because things aren't the way he wants them. They're not good in the state they're in. God will make you aware of that need. When he does, it's not a cause of concern or lament. It's an upside because it just means God's going to be at work in your life to bring about more of his conforming you to Christ, more of your experience of life and joy in Christ's image. This is a good thing. Now, it's funny, as I was thinking about this, on one hand, we live in a culture that devalues marriage. And read the statistics, it's clear. On the other hand, there is a desperation, oftentimes, among some, more, more often women than men, to get married. They want to be married, and they're not. And so for this other half, there's this oftentimes quiet, it's kind of like a low-grade fever, it just goes on and on. There's kind of a quiet sense of desperation, I want to be married, and I'm not. If you're a person, uh, if you're a woman looking for your version of Adam or you're uh, Adam looking for your version of Eve, let me say two things along this line. If you're, if you're the one that's saying, I want to be married and I'm not, and my biological clock is ticking, or there's no one on the horizon, what should my outlook on that be? Let me just say two things about that. The first is this, refuse to worry Refuse fear and fretting and frustration about that thing that you can't pull, pull off anyway. Refuse fear. You know, in all our life, when we've, we want something we can't get, we're faced with obstacles we can't surmount. Typically, our first carnal expression of that is we get fearful, we get anxious, we worry about it. We are clearly commanded as Christians not to worry. So the first thing is just this. Refuse worry, refuse angst, and give that thing to God in prayer. You're going to have pangs, you're going to have sense of loss, frustration, whatever. When you feel those, when they start, not after you've entertained them for a day, a week, or a month, but when they start, when that comes up, remind yourself, I refuse to worry about this. Act like a child of the King of the universe and the Creator of the heavens and the earth. I refuse to worry about that, God. I give that to you. The second thing is this. It's don't act as your own matchmaker. Don't act as your own matchmaker. If you notice this text, who's behind the scenes? Who's bringing all this about? God is the matchmaker in this love story. God makes Adam aware of his need. God creates Eve. God presents Eve to Adam. So don't take things in your own hand. And I'm not saying don't go to places where there's other available Christians. I'm not saying that. You know, you got a great story in Ruth where Naomi says, hey, go out there. And by the way, there's an eligible bachelor out there. So I'm not, say, I'm not saying uh, 
be careful what I'm saying here. I'm not saying don't go places and don't pray about, don't look for opportunities to meet available people. But don't be your own matchmaker and don't force this issue. In this original love story, it's God who's the matchmaker. And He's bringing this about. So when you think about this and you get that angst or that pain, refuse worry. And then you ask God, Lord, you, bring, you be the matchmaker. You bring to me. You bring me to the person you want me for. You bring the person you mean for me. You bring them to me. But Lord, you be at work behind the scenes to bring about your will. Don't settle for less than that. Verse 24, this is actually these last two verses are editorial. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's God's design that new families be started. And God says that um, they become one flesh. This is meaningful for a couple of reasons. There's no relationship on earth closer than husband and wife. No relationship on earth closer than husband and wife. Of no other relationship can it be said they are one flesh. Marriage is absolutely unique in the world. And one of the applications of that is this. You cannot afford to value any other person or any other thing, I'm talking God aside, over your spouse. You can't value your children over your spouse. Many parents do. You cannot value your mother or your father or your siblings or your career or your work buddies, or your play friends, or whatever above your spouse. Your marriage is the strongest relationship on this planet. And as such, it has to be your priority. If you're married, that is your priority. You cannot afford to spend excessive time elsewhere if your marriage is suffering. Your marriage is your first commitment in a relationship after God. Also, the comment of one flesh, of course, is understood here, and Jesus interprets in the New Testament to mean this. This marriage relationship is seen in God's eyes to be indissoluble. Jesus says what God has joined, don't, uh, man should not separate. By God's doing, he says a marriage is to be for a lifetime. Marriage is to be for a lifetime. And I know there's failure Guys, you know this, it's in the church, it's in the culture, there's divorce, there's remarriage, etc. I don't want to make anybody here feel bad. If you've sinned in the past and you've blown it in a marriage, you repent, you confess to God and you go on with your life. But marriage is meant to be indissoluble. One man, one woman for their lifetime. It's a permanent commitment. This passage in Genesis 2 is the basis, it's the biblical basis and you'll see it throughout the Bible. It is the key verse on marriage. Jesus quotes it in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5. It's the key text on marriage. One flesh for a lifetime. Finally, the last comment of the creation account, chapters 1 and 2, is verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We're going to get into shame in the next chapter because shame comes up as a response to sin, the account of the fall. But at this point, Adam and Eve are innocent and creation is everything God meant it to be and nothing He didn't mean it to be. So Adam and Eve are naked and they have no sense of shame. There's no downside to them personally. There's no downside to creation around them. They're free to enjoy creation and each other 
No holds barred, no downside, everything's good. No shame. This is a, uh, this is a huge issue. Mankind lived in innocence very briefly, and for that brief period there was no sense of deficiency, no sense of culpability. You know, for us today, we've never known this. There's no one in this room who's ever known this state. We grow up with a sense of shame because of our deficiencies. But Adam and Eve had none. So there was nothing to feel shameful about. Here's the perfect man. Here's the perfect woman in a perfect creation. Life is good and there's no downside. The feast is set and then God serves dessert. That's the culmination. Adam thinks it's good, but it gets even better. Let me rehearse briefly, winding down here. Listen to the key elements of this story. Adam lies down in sleep. During his sleep, God removes a rib and fashions Eve, his bride and his wife. And then God presents Eve to Adam to his delight and joy. Key elements of this story. Apply this uh, a few years later. Jesus Christ lays down His life in the sleep of death on the cross. From His sleep of death, God provides forgiveness for sins and forms the church, the church the Scripture calls the Bride of Christ. And at a meeting yet to come, Christ the second Adam is presented with His new Eve, His bride, perfect, spotless, no shame. You can read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. Let me read from Ephesians 5.25, and this is, I'm sure, a familiar passage for all of you, the the linchpin for us is the last verse. Starting at verse 25 in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, we might say shameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh, <coughs> excuse me, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, quoting from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. Husbands and wives and marriage. But, Paul says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul looks at Adam and Eve. Paul looks at Genesis 2. And he says, guys, this is all a picture. It's all a foretelling of Christ's relationship with the church. That the love of a husband for a wife and the support of a wife for a husband are supposed to mirror, are supposed to foretell this relationship Christ has, will have, with His church forever and eternity in that future garden of delight. Genesis 2 is the key theme for marriage, but it's also the first shadow, if you will, that one day God will become man, the second Adam, and God will bring to Himself His bride, His wife, His version of Eve. If you're married today, your aim should be no less than that your marriage would display the kind of joyful love, support, commitment for each other that Adam and Eve had in Genesis and that Christ will have with the church. Your marriage is supposed to be 
a window, if you will, into the life Christ will have with the church forever. If your neighbors look at your marriage, do they see heaven on earth? Or do they see the same kind of problems they have? We all have problems. It's how we respond to them. What's our aim? What's our goal? If you're married, your goal should be that your marriage reflects Christ's relationship with the church. If you're not married but want to be, uh, refuse fear and ask God to be your matchmaker. Don't take things into your own hand. Jesus says the meek inherit the earth. The meek are those who don't grasp things for themselves. When you're meek, you allow God to place in your hands and in your life the things He intends for you. So don't take things for yourself. Ask God to be your divine matchmaker. And regardless of your marital status, whatever life looks like or doesn't look like for you here on this earth, remember this, we're heading for a marriage feast. Eternity, where we are everything we should be and nothing we shouldn't be. We're perfectly matched with Christ, the second Adam, the one that we'll live in the garden of delights with forever. No matter how much we sin or struggle on this earth, our future is glorious. And and at times on this earth, we think life is good, but God says dessert is still coming. The final course is still coming. It's going to get even better. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes I know life is good in such a way that we think we'd like to live here for a long, long time because we want to continue to enjoy what we've got. Lord, other days, uh, sin and pain, loss and sorrow remind us that life here isn't all that it should be. And then we long to see you face to face and be freed from sin and its effects. Lord, help us to live like those who were intended in the past. Uh, Brides not yet wed, waiting for their wedding day. Life goes on and life is good and it's full, but there's a coming day in which it will get even better. Lord, help us to live as those who know you now and are filled with your spirit and experience your joy, but also, Lord, as those who are looking forward to the wedding feast, the supper, that you've set where we see you face to face and begin that eternal, intimate, joyful relationship with you forever. Thanks for providing that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.